Okay. So I want to start out with a question, and I want you all to answer the question for me. Tell me what is talked about in this conversation between Jesus, the woman, and his disciples. Just start throwing it. What did they talk about? They talk about water. Living water and water water. Okay. What else? So they talk about food. Jesus has food that no one knows about. Food, what else? They talk about her past, right? That's exactly right. This woman's private life. What else? They talk about an agricultural image that Jesus uses. That's right. very true. What else? Where to worship and how to worship. So the reason I wanted to start with this is today we're going to be talking about sharing the gospel in dialogue. And I think that this story gives us uh, an insight into a technique that Jesus used that we also can use in a way as we explain the gospel to other people. Uh, because most of the time, most of us are not going to be pastors giving sermons. We're going to be ordinary people talking to their friends. So maybe the women can answer this question. But when you sit down to have tea or coffee or lunch with a friend... How does the conversation go? What? How are the kids? It starts usually with some kind of a personal conversation about something you all have in common. And then what does it do? It meanders. I didn't want to say that, but one of the problems I have with listening to my wife has to do with that particular characteristic of we have to talk about the war in the Middle East, our youngest daughter, and I'm never sure exactly what we're talking about at any given point in time in the conversation, what we're having for dinner, how the cars are working, are we going to change the house, all these things that we uh, talk about in one single conversation. But if we think about it, most of our conversations have that characteristic. Okay, Most conversations have more than one subject. Uh, I'm particularly bad as a conversationalist, and so it's bad for me to be teaching this, but the fact is, if you have the kind of mind that wants to get to business, you're very bad at cocktail parties, aren't you? Uh, because a cocktail party works on the following assumption. We're going to go get a cocktail, uh, we're going to drift around the room, we're going to have small talk with people, and during the course of the evening, most of the conversation will be small talk. But at some point in time, we may talk about something relatively important, just as sort of an aside as the conversation leads us there. Okay? And a lot of the time when we share the gospel with people, it will be in just exactly that way. It will be an aside as the conversation takes us there. And that's what dialogue is about. Now, um, some of you may know, <clears throat> last week you did 10, this week you're doing 9. That would imply that I had this taken out of order. Uh, and the reason I had it taken out of order is that I'm very interested in dialogue. And just to let you know, I'm writing a book right now on political philosophy, and dialogue plays an important part in that book. I'm working on a, a political theology essay, and dialogue plays an important part in that. And I'm working on revising this book on discipleship, and dialogue plays an important part in that because our culture has forgotten how to talk to people with whom we don't agree and have very little in common. 
so let's go back for just a minute uh, to Jesus and the Samaritan woman. How much in common does Jesus of Nazareth have to do have with this woman? Not too much. He is a Jew and she is a Samaritan. Absolutely, Jews do not talk to Samaritans. They hated the Samaritans, and the Samaritans disliked the Jews due to the division of the North and the South uh, about 700 years earlier. Okay, so a long grudge existed between the Samaritans and the Jews. Uh, rabbis are forbidden to talk to women. So Jesus is sexually unlike this person, and in his culture it was improper for him to even have a conversation with her. Uh, and what kind of a woman is she? She's a tainted woman, and once again, of all the things that a rabbi could not do, it's talk to a woman of the streets, because that would imply that he might be interested, and that would lower his moral authority with the people. So Jesus is entering into a conversation with a person that he hasn't got very much in common with, they have no social background together, and furthermore, under the rules of his culture, he shouldn't be talking to her at all. And yet, they have this very deep and important conversation. Now that tells us something about the importance of learning to talk to people we don't agree with and who don't agree with us, okay, as we share the gospel with them. And so, I'm going to talk about the word dialogue. I love the word dialogue, uh, uh, partly because I like to think about the roots of the words, but the word dia in Greek means through, and the word logos in Greek means to reason. And so dialogue is that process where we reason through. We reason through in a conversation between persons. Okay, so it's not one person knows everything and they're telling the other person what they know. That's not a dialogue, that's a speech. Okay, a dialogue is when two people enter into a common reasoning process in which the truth will be revealed to both of them. Okay, uh, which means that everyone has to enter a dialogue willing to listen and respond to what the other person is saying and to take account of what truth there might be in what the other person might be saying. A dialogue implies, therefore, that there is information and knowledge to be found on both sides of the discussion. Okay, uh, so um, back to business for just a moment. Uh, when you're entering into a business negotiation, those of you who've had the experience, you all know this to be true, uh, you begin by trying to figure out where the other person is and what they want out of this transaction. Now, you already have your idea of what you want out of the transaction, but you've got to figure out what they want, and then you've got to figure out how to get what you want, giving them what they want at the same time so that you can reach a reasonable conclusion to the transaction. And so, inevitably, the best negotiators, and I'm, I'm at a long business career, inevitably, the best negotiators are people who are liked by the person on the other side. 
Nothing makes me more frustrated than to watch TV shows because they always portray this as a big argument in which somebody wins because it makes better drama. But the truth is, as we all know, uh, that normally speaking, in any business transaction, the best thing is where both people at the end like each other and think they've gotten what they were after. Isn't that right? Um, I once, this is an aside, but I once had a transaction. It was right before Kathy and I were going to get married. In fact, it was to close the day before we were to be married. And these two gentlemen hated each other and distrusted each other. And it just so happened the mayor's prayer breakfast was that week. It was in April. And I went to the mayor's prayer breakfast. Uh, Chuck Colson was speaking. And I couldn't listen to one word. I was just praying the whole time, Lord, I'm going to miss my own wedding if these two guys don't reach an agreement. <laughs> I need your help here. These two guys need to reach an agreement, and I need to close this tomorrow. (laughs) Because if it doesn't, I'm not going to be at the wedding, and we're not going on a honeymoon, or my boss is going to be real mad at me, one of those situations. Uh, And fortunately, they didn't like each other, but we did manage to get it closed. So another word that's important, I think, is the word conversation. Um, Because conversation has a Latin root, that really means to bend with. It means that we bend with the other person. It means we adjust what we say to what the other person is willing to hear. Okay? So that conversation is when two people bend their minds and spirits towards one another in order to reach a kind of a common understanding of what the other is saying. Okay? Um, In other words, both dialogue and conversation are relational. We're talking about a human relationship. Now, I'm just going to pass off to politics for just one moment to say that you can see what's wrong with our culture because the two sides of our political argument no longer converse with each other. They no longer dialogue with each other. They no longer respect each other. They're no longer looking for a common truth. They're looking for a victory. And when that happens, of course, you get massive dysfunction. So, uh, why is this so important? And we're going to look at the woman at the well. First of all, people learn and grow in a relationship. If Jesus had simply looked up at the woman and said, you're an adulteress, you're living in a sinful relationship, you need to change, turn, or burn, what would the likely result have been uh, in this conversation? Kind of been the end of the conversation, wouldn't it? Uh, how much would she have learned about Jesus? Nothing, other than that he's a jerk. Uh, so she wouldn't have learned anything. Uh, she wouldn't have come to respect him. She wouldn't have come to be interested in what he had to say. But as a result of Jesus entering into this conversation, this dialogue with the lady, they developed a relationship. They developed a relationship. And then in that relationship, Jesus was able to convey to her important information that allowed her to come to believe that he was the Messiah. Uh, So learning to build relationships first, healthy relationships first with a person, before we share the gospel with that person is critical. That's kind of where we get to the first big point of this, is that You might feel that all I'm doing is taking my friend out to 
coffee at Starbucks week after week and we're talking about the children and the grandchildren and it doesn't, but that's not true. You're building a relationship with that person in which that person may one day ask you a question about your faith. And that's what you, you don't push it, just allow the relationship to develop. Now, there's a big reason for this, and this is kind of a heady statement, but it's true. Postmodern people are intensely pragmatic. Intensely pragmatic. We often criticize our children for being idealistic, but I've noticed that that idealism is simply what they think is best for themselves. They're really intensely pragmatic about everything, and they want to know if it works, and if it doesn't work, they're not interested. One of the reasons they're not very interested in the Christian faith is many of them have come to the conclusion it doesn't work. My life will be no better. The services are boring. I don't understand what the pastor is saying. Uh, pragmatically speaking, I would be better off to sleep late, go to Starbucks, and have brunch with my boyfriend. So they're intensely pragmatic, yet they're often lonely and desire relationships. A lot of the mistakes our, our children make have to do with an inability to form healthy relationships. Uh, yesterday I told Kathy that in our church <coughs> in, uh, in, in Memphis, there was a, a young lady who <coughs> was always kind of troubled. Um, I, I came to know her when she was about six years old and she was trouble in kindergarten. Uh, she was trouble in, in grade school. She was trouble in high school. She was just trouble. And um, she came from a broken home, and she was not, um, um, to had very bad role models. Uh, and about a year and a half ago, she tried to commit suicide and blew off the front of her face. And most recently, uh, she was on the Internet explaining how this happened. And the bottom line of it was is she didn't feel that she knew how to love, so she kept getting in bad relationships with men. <laughs> and uh, she kept trying to find her self-worth in those relationships with men. And the men kept doing what, men, what we men do so well, disappointing our women. <laughs> and um, eventually she had a bad relationship and a bad breakup and thought this is it. And tried to kill herself. She was very glad, by the way, she didn't kill herself because she was able to grow up through this. Um, though she was also really, really pretty. And, of course, she will never be quite as pretty as she was back in the day. Uh, and so um, she was very vulnerable about, I've paid a price for my bad decision-making. Um, one of the things we Christians want to do is help people find healthy relationships. And if we're right, and I think we are, Healthy relationships begin with having a healthy relationship with God who loves us unconditionally and who provides an ultimate form of love that sustains us even when human loves disappoint us. So the gift of the gospel is a gift not of judgment, not of legalism, not of a bunch of rules you've got to obey. It's a gift of healing of the greatest need we human beings have, which is a need for relationship with God and with other people and with our colleagues and with the world itself. So postmodern people watch us to see if faith makes a difference.
And if they sense it makes a difference, they learn best in conversation. Um, you know, I, I know you've heard me say this before, but I just say it again. Preaching and the kind of teaching I'm doing right now really is not the best way to learn. You all rem if I'm lucky today, you all remember 10% of what I say. But guess what? Every one of you who talks will remember about 80% of what you say. So that should tell us that the wise teacher lets other people tell you what it is you want them to learn. <laughs> because when they do, they'll remember it. But when you say it, they won't. Now, in this kind of a classroom, you can't do that. But over coffee with a friend, over dinner with another couple, uh, in, across a table in a business negotiation, at lunch with other people, you can have those conversations in which they will give the information that you want them to know back to you. And in doing so, they will remember and reinforce it. So it's not like I'm trying to teach you something that just allows Bob Fuller not to have to do his job. That's not the point at all. The point is, in order for the gospel to be shared, it really has to be shared in relationships, and people have to talk back to us. And we have to hear whatever it is they have to say. Notice that the woman is very confused a lot of the time, and Jesus has to listen to someone who doesn't really know what's going on. Okay? But he does that. He listens to her, he responds to her, and he evokes from her uh, an understanding of who he is. In other words, Jesus was very good at conversation. Very good at conversation. So we often, I think, uh, because I grew up in the age of Billy Graham, uh, I grew up in the age of these great evangelists, and of course we've all seen TV evangelists, uh, we often glorify those people who evangelize by giving talks from podiums or on television. And in doing that, we underestimate, I hope I'm on the right slide, uh, we, by the way, my computer is doing what you asked me to do last week. The screen isn't doing it. I don't know why. Um, we often underestimate the value of unintentional discipleship. As important as what you intentionally tell a person uh, is, uh, we often underestimate the importance of what we unintentionally tell another person. When we unintentionally show love to another person, when we unintentionally show a complete acceptance of whatever they've done wrong, uh, when we unintentionally accept them into our life patterns, we make a statement bigger than some of the conscious statements we make. Okay, So the unintentional part of just being in relationship is very important. And since people watch Christians, whether we are intentional or not, what we say and do unintentionally counts. I just want to say that that should tell us all because I do a lot of bad things unintentionally. Um, I think it's important for us to grow personally in our discipleship because as we change internally we don't make as many unintentional mistakes. <laughs> uh, so our own spiritual walk as we internalize the gospel that's how we begin a process of uh, what we call sanctification, or what they call theosis in the East, a process by which we become more like Christ, and therefore unintentionally we show people God's love. We don't have to do it intentionally, because it's part of who we are. And these unintentional moments are the foundation of any intentional moment. 
Jesus goes to the well. He sits down. He's thirsty. He asks for a drink. They have a conversation. They build a relationship, probably unintentionally. And that's the foundation of the intentionalness of the conversation that Jesus brings to the forefront. Okay. Um, in our culture, we tend to favor debate and discussion over dialogue and conversation. Now, by the way, there's a physicist who taught me this. His name is David Bohm, but this is very interesting. You all know the term percussion? Guns work on percussion. Well, the word discussion has the same root as percussion. In other words, it's about blasting people, okay? It's about getting my way. It's about giving arguments why I'm right and you're wrong. Discussion is oppositional. Now, we all know that debate is by its very nature oppositional. I have my position. I'm defending it. You have your position. You're defending it. Some third party we're trying to convince is listening to that. Uh, by the way, why is our government so dysfunctional? The answer is we rely solely on debate and discussion now. Uh, and it's my team against your team trying to convince the voters that we're right, as opposed to a conversation about what's best for the country. That doesn't mean, by the way, we can't get rid of debate. Debate has an important role to play. For those who debate non-Christians about the essential elements of the faith, do a good thing. But debate alone isn't enough. There has to be a relationship, conversation, and dialogue. Because debates are adversarial, not relational. You know, I was a debater in high school. I debated all over the state of Missouri. I debated nearly every weekend in the fall and early spring. Um, and you know, I don't see, have one friend from the other teams I debated against. I have, I have friends from my own team. Why? Well, because we didn't even really like each other. We were busy defeating each other every week. I, some of these people I saw 15 times during a school year. <laughs> and it was... Once, once a week for weeks, we'd, find them, we'd be debating them in different places. But we never had a relationship. We just argued about something. We got very good at that, by the way. Um, so, by the way, another thing is debates actually turn off postmoderns. They actually do turn off our children and grandchildren. Um, they're not interested in the debate. They're interested, as I said, in does it make a difference. Uh, so the debate increasingly just doesn't even work as a tool. Perhaps more importantly, if we're correct as Christians and God is love, and the love of God is what we are supposed to be communicating to another person, then the words are not as important as the love. The love is primary. So the love that we transmit to another person in the relationship is more important than the information. I was thinking about this passage this week that we're studying. <clears throat> and oops. Um, and um, basically, this passage, we don't know how long the real conversation took. Obviously, John is just right giving us a summary. Same thing is true of Nicodemus and the other ones we're going to talk about. Um, so basically, we don't know exactly how long Jesus talked to this woman. But we can bet that it's longer than what we have recorded in the gospel. 
And so we don't know exactly. It may be that all we have is just the tip of an iceberg of a conversation that went on with this woman. Same thing's true of the others. So I just want to tell you, if you think that I've just picked out one random passage um, to talk about dialogue, I didn't. Um, Jesus obviously excelled at dialogue. And John in his gospel, the other sermon on the other evangelists, uh, give us a picture of Jesus as a speaker, as a public speaker. John goes out of his way to talk to us about Jesus as a personal communicator. When he has this conversation with Nicodemus at night, uh, I didn't choose that conversation today to talk about specifically, primarily because he talks about so many different things with the woman at the well. With Nicodemus, he really talks about a single thing. Uh, but uh, there's a conversation going on. Nicodemus wants to see him. Jesus comes at night. Uh, they have a conversation about the Holy Spirit, about the new birth in Christ, about God's desire that all people will be saved. Uh, the conversation doesn't stay in a single topic for very long. And once again, we don't know how long they talked. Maybe they talked half the night, uh, but we could read it this morning in about four minutes. Uh, so we don't really know how long Jesus took to reason with Nicodemus. And the man that was born blind from birth, where Jesus enters into a conversation with a man that has a problem. Uh, and we don't know how long the ultimate conversation, the actual conversation. So, we can dialogue with those who are in need of love. I'm going to have to do something here because my computer's blocking my screen. Um, we can have conversations with those in need of love. Uh, Bible stories can help people make sense of their lives. I'm moving into a, a different kind of a situation, but memorizing Bible stories is an important part of being able to have a conversation with a person, okay, um, in which the gospel can be transmitted naturally. Uh, I'm going to give you an example which I might have shared. I've shared this story so many times with so many different groups, I actually don't know who I've shared it with. But basically, when we started doing Salt and Light, there was a woman in our group. She was one of my elders. She'd been a stewardess for Northwest Airlines for 25 or 30 years. I like to stop and say, by the way, keeping angry men happy at 6 a.m. in the morning makes you a great elder. She was a great elder. She knew exactly how to diffuse conflict in any situation that you could raise for her because she had had to do that in a crowded airplane at 6 a.m. with a bunch of angry guys. Um, well, uh, she didn't like the class. She didn't like the class uh, because she didn't really want to ever have to share her faith. She didn't want to, have to ever have to share her faith. Um, and, uh, but she stayed long enough to memorize the story of the woman at the well. Uh, pardon, at, uh, at the woman at the well. She stayed long enough to memorize that story. And uh, then she quit the class, went away, but she returned to the class about six weeks later and told us this story. And the story is as follows. Being a stewardess, of course, she had lots of female friends uh, who they flew together back in the day for years. And one of her friends asked her to go out for a cup of coffee and explain to her that she had had an affair and that her husband was going to find out, and it was going to destroy her marriage, and that uh, she was going to be miserable and unhappy for a very long time. 
Well, this woman actually had had a bad experience with the Christian faith in her past and was violently anti-Christian. Um, well, in the course of the conversation, she made, the woman made the comment uh, that God, of course, your God, uh, will condemn me for what I've done. And our friend said, no, that's not what Jesus would do. Uh, and he, she told the woman the story of the woman at the well. He said he, he didn't condemn the world. He just, the woman, he just saved her. Uh, and um, the woman really accepted that story. Now, I don't know whether she, Gwen never told me if she actually came to Christ, and we've been gone from, this happened late in my career, we've been gone from Memphis for a long time, but you can see that because Gwen knew that story, she was able to respond to this woman who needed to have some assurance that God still loved her, even though she had done this thing that she knew was wrong and that God believed was wrong, okay? Uh, and in the process, she began a, a little bit of healing of this woman's dislike of the Christian faith. So on many levels, this was a great thing. And, and I, I, I doubt that Gwen would ever want to go through it, uh, a, a conversation about what is the gospel and do you accept Christ. Uh, another person may have to do that for this woman, but Gwen did her part. She did her part she helped begin the process of bringing this woman out of her current situation into a healed situation, both with God and hopefully with her husband. Um, I, I tell this story. Uh, I might have told this to you. Yes, ma'am. Loud. Yeah, so I'll, I'll give you one other example from business. I, I think I might, once again, I've told these stories so many times I know what I've told you all. I apologize if it's repetitive. Um, so uh, one time many years ago, we were, a bank I represented was trying to foreclose on a radio station in Alabama. And I tell people, the person that owned the radio station was hated throughout the community. The only person they hated worse were the Texans. And so we were having great problems with getting this radio station foreclosed on. And um, we were in a negotiation, and at some point during the day, um, I let something slide deliberately. Uh, we were in a negotiation. 
I could have pressed the point and gotten something, and I just didn't do it. I didn't think it was the right thing to do. And um, we happened to be on a private plane. So we're flying back to Houston that night, and the guy that I was representing, who actually was representing a group of wealthy Texans, um, he looked across and he said, you know, I noticed today that you did this. And he said, you did that because you're a Christian, didn't you? I said, yeah. I said, I just didn't want to press the point. It was, I'd be taking advantage of him if I pressed the point. Well, from that, we had the, a chance to have the only religious conversation the two of us ever had. And we did a lot of work together before and after this. But during that night together, we had a conversation about my faith, about why it was I didn't take advantage of the situation that day, and why I thought, practically speaking, it didn't matter, and that I was going to get the point back anyway in the next round of negotiations. Uh, and so I really wasn't harming the client, but I was kind of letting the other party have some time to think about what they were doing. Uh, that conversation, um, the, the person, by the way, was a Christian. He was a Baptist. Are they Christians? I guess they are. Uh, and um, I was a Christian, and our ability to work together from that point on was much improved. We had a very great relationship until the very day we, I stopped representing that group. So that these little conversations, we have the little things that we do as Christians because of our faith are noticed, and they can have an impact on another life. So dialogue and conversation today, this is kind of just a little bit of a wrap-up, I think. Uh, first of all, to remember that people are lonely and isolated. People are lonely. It, this became very apparent during COVID-19. Very apparent as all sorts of personal psychological dysfunctions uh, came to the front. And we know lots of people that used to go to the office and be in relationships with people all the time, they work now from home in front of a computer screen uh, remotely. And almost all these people are, in fact, lonely. They're lonely. They're starved for relationships. They don't really have human relationships. Occasionally, uh, I have to uh, explain to some of my children uh, that texting is not a form of human relationship. That if you want to have a relationship with me, you need to come and see me, not text me. Uh, because you really, I, I have this problem with Kathy. Do you know how long it takes to decide where you're going to dinner on text messages? It's incredible. It takes 15 text messages to decide where to go to dinner, whereas in one minute in a personal conversation, you can make that decision. It's a, emails and text messages are a terrible way of actually being in a relationship, conveying information, and reaching agreement. It takes at least twice as long to reach any agreement by text or email than it does personally. Um, which is why I used to tell people in business, in business, I don't mind emailing you about what color we're going to paint the, this room when we repaint the room. But if I've got to decide whether you're going to be pay, repay the loan I'm about to make to you, I want to see you in person and decide in person whether I think you're going to repay it. Uh, if our church was in a big conflict as the pastor, I didn't want to handle that by email. I wanted to get the players in a room and talk about the problem <laughs> to see if we could reach an agreement. Uh, personal relationships are important in human life. And when people are deprived of it, we basically begin to shatter internally. Our culture is just basically one big internally shattered group. Um, there are uh, some things that we need to learn. First of all, listen before you speak. 
remember that this woman, right, that Gwen, she told her whole story about this affair to Gwen before Gwen ever said a word. You know, so uh, listen before you speak. Um, I've been a counselor and, you know, for a lot of years, and it's remarkable to me how often your first impressions about a situation are wrong. I can't think of a single time I was right about a person the first time I heard the story. <laughs> uh, it's amazing how every time a person reveals a new fact to you about themselves, you get a different vision of who that person is. Uh, and so not to jump in prematurely with a person with the, solu the Christian solution to their problem is important because you may not yet know the crucial fact. You may not know the crucial fact. And until you know the crucial fact, you might give the wrong advice. So listening, asking questions, being sure you understand where the person is coming from is very important. Um, I was thinking about this the other day. You know, I, I never wear a clergy collar, ever. Uh, never did. But in Africa, uh, they expect you to wear a clergy collar. They expect you to wear a clergy collar. And so when we traveled to Africa, and when we did water installations in Africa, not on the work sites, I didn't wear a clergy collar, but at church on Sunday especially, I wore a clergy collar because they would have me come up front to talk. Uh, and I would periodically at meetings wear a clergy collar. Well, one day, uh, I came back from... Uh, Africa, uh, normally I would change out of my clergy collar, which I would have had on because of the final goodbye convocation. I got to Skipple, and I couldn't change clothes. I got to Memphis, I was still wearing my clergy collar. Uh, well, I noticed that, that, and I just went pretty much straight to the church that night. I was totally exhausted, kind of delirious. All I noticed that one of the women was looking at me very strangely, and I suddenly realized she'd had a bad experience with a priest in her prior life. <laughs> that my clergy collar wasn't positive for this person. It was negative. Uh, and, um, and it was a person I knew pretty well. Uh, another thing is to be self-aware of your own emotional triggers. What is it that automatically just offends you? Um, I'm really bad at this. Most of us are. But Kathy can always tell when I'm mad before I say anything uh, because uh, it's in my face. Uh, and uh, knowing your emotional triggers helps you control your visible connection with that person because you're aware that I need to be careful right now because she's just said something or he's just said something that I find offensive and I don't want to look mad. <laughs> um, okay, so a final word. Um, people do not become perfect disciples the moment they accept Christ. I can speak to that from personal experience. Just like us, people resist change, they make mistakes, they hide their faults and shortcomings, they fear rejection if they're honest about what they think or what they do, uh, and their struggles. If we are able to help people at a cr with critical junctures in their Christian walk, we have to continue to be open, non-judgmental, diplomatic, and conversational as we help people obey all that Christ has commanded them. Which lets you know that, once again, I view discipleship as a process. 
So we're not talking about being in dialogue just before a person converts. We're talking about the process of their growth depends, us, depends upon us continuing to be in dialogue. Continuing to be open to them, continuing to accept their failures, um, and to continue to be with them even when they have backtracked on the commitments they've made. Um, you know, I've had a chance to deal with a lot of alcoholics. And I, I don't have a single experience where the person never, never relapsed. One notorious situation, I can't tell you how many times I went to visit the person when they relapsed. Um, well, discipleship is like that. People relapse. Every day in the media, they get signs that happiness is about sexual satisfaction, it's about being handsome, it's about having a lot of money, it's about spending a lot of money, it's about having power over other people. Every day, every Christian we know gets all these messages, and it's not surprising that from time to time they act on those messages. Uh, and so we have to be willing to be with people in a long up-and-down process of growth. And with that, I'll take questions. Yes. One of the things that struck me early in your conversation was not just the conversation, not just the woman at the well, but the impact it had on her whole village. It was a, it was a big deal. It was a big deal. We know that the village was transformed by this. Exactly. Yes. You know, there might be, we don't know what a person might have read. Uh, Cambodia, he's probably a Buddhist poet, but um, maybe he had a Christian experience that he knew that story. But the story of this is that they did not talk to each other. <laughs> there was no I guess it was love at first sight. <laughs> that does happen. Um, and so maybe it was love at first sight. Uh, I was thinking about what you were talking about, um, another part of this story that has to do with this thing. You know, in, in Africa, especially, the women have perfect posture, absolute perfect posture, because carrying a, a, a fairly large thing on your head requires that you be able to glide because if you do any turning of your head, you've lost your water. 
That's what made the women in, uh, because no woman would ever leave a jar of water at the well and go into town without a, a huge shock uh, because it, it, that's their livelihood. That's their life. What's water for their children? That's water for the coffee. That's water for washing. That's everything they have to do during that day is that water. Uh, and usually they have to go twice, once in the morning and once in the evening uh, to get water. And so it's a big deal in these countries. And uh, a woman would be very unlikely to leave water sitting before she ran back home. She would take the water home. Uh, but I think she was so anxious to talk to people and tell them about Jesus, she had to leave the jar there because it would have fallen off if she hadn't. Thank you for that comment. That was a great. What else? Oh, I know you guys have questions. Yeah. It's interesting that uh, she had to go later than all the other women, so that she was alone at the wells for Jesus to, and he, he knew that, of course, ahead, I guess, but um, uh, because of her past, she would be, not be accepted uh, in the other women society. She would have been shunned because guess who she was sleeping with? Their husbands. So <laughs> they would have not liked her very much. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes, yes. Um, it is true. The, the communal aspect of this in the community itself is very important because they all knew she was a bad person, so when she comes back changed, they all notice. One of the things I like about the study is that these people, the Samaritans, were effectively a different kind of Jew, if you will, and the fact that 500 years after their last uh, conversation with anybody in Judaic culture, they were still worshiping God and waiting for Messiah to come. Yes, they. Uh, Five hundred years of the well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for those of you who've been to the, the Holy Land, has been on everybody's mind this week. The the well we are speaking of is very close to the headquarters of the Palestinian Liberation Organization uh, in Ramallah, uh, and so when you go there, you when you go to the well and to see the well, you um, you you go into Ramallah. And so it's a place that even today has religious significance to the Jews and to the Palestinians. And they occasionally close off the well so that people can't get to it or they fight over the well so that they can open it up again. I, I was able to go to the well. I don't think tourists right now would probably even be able to go to the well uh, because you'd have to, you clearly would have to have a Palestinian God um, to get there. What else? Speak of dialogue and conversation. We've kind of moved from debate. We've moved from trying to work out a win-win situation to I win, you lose. Now we've already got we've gotten to the point now where we just silence the person. So we can't even have a 
conversation or dialogue because you're canceled. Yeah. So is this a pendulum swing? Do you think we'll be able to swing back? Well, I think Where do we go? my... My favorite, this gets off the, off the subject, but on one I'm very interested in. Unless our society learns to converse across differences again, and then we're going to d destroy ourselves. Uh, I'll give you just one example. It's always on my mind. Uh, but our government has been, through Republicans and Democrats, irrational in its spending. Uh, we know that Britain, Britain destroyed its economy by devaluing the, the, the pound, and we took over the world's leadership after World War II in money. Uh, the two sides, obviously to solve that problem, you can't just cut taxes forever, nor can you raise taxes forever, nor can you cut spending forever. All the various solutions the sides have are only partially right. So what we must do is agree on a solution on a reasonable solution where everybody gets something but nobody gets their way, but Washington is frozen and we, get the, we want our way. Uh, and I think as Christians, I, I want to take it out of politics for just a minute and say, one of the best things we can do for our society is to simply cultivate reasonableness <laughs> and a willingness to listen to our enemies. <laughs> uh, because once again, I don't expect the heads of the two political parties to switch the way they conduct politics uh, tomorrow morning because I said it would be a good idea. But it's possible if they see Christians, if they see people being successful by showing reasonableness to the other side, that they will get the idea that maybe this is a good idea. <laughs> uh, so I think we just have to demonstrate it in our own relationships as well as uh, the, the book I'm writing is really is all about the need to get to stop the incredible divisions and unwillingness to listen to the other side and to begin to converse about big problems. You know, I, those of you in business, I don't think I've ever solved a problem in any church or in any business situation where I was totally right and the other side was totally wrong. <laughs> I can't think of a single situation when that's been the case. Uh, there's always truth on the other side, and there's always something there that you need to take account of in your decision-making, and we've lost the ability to do that. We've just lost the ability. And so we see these huge policy uh, pendulum swings. We've also lost it in the church. I hate to say it, but we've lost it in the church as well, where people just don't want to listen to people they don't agree with. And so, um, um, and by the way, I will say this. It's in the book. Many proponents of dialogue say you have to give up what you believe. You have to just be totally open-minded. Well, that's, that's an impossible state. <laughs> uh, you do not have to give up your opinion, your convictions, or the evidence you have for your opinion, the depth of your opinion. None of that has to change. Uh, you simply have to listen to the other person being open to what they have to say. But it doesn't mean that I stop believing um, that Jesus is the Son of God. It doesn't mean I stop believing that salvation comes through Christ. It doesn't mean I stop believing any of that. I'm just willing to listen to the other person's point of view and give them mine at the appropriate time. And, and once again, if it's up to me, we would pass a constitutional amendment that would force every member of Congress to have dinner at least once a year with the other side. <laughs> I think that would be a very 
profitable change in our political system where no bill could be passed by Congress unless all the congressmen had, had dinner with the other people on the other side. That would probably be a very good thing for us to do. Uh, what else? Well, let's pray then. Lord Jesus, um, we haven't talked about it today, but we've been discussing the woman at the well in Samaria, and we know that that's a region that's today filled with anger and with uh, terrorism, with war, uh, with action and counteraction, uh, and with great, great violence. Um, we pray, Lord, that you would be in that situation. We have no earthly idea how it can come to a peaceful conclusion. We have no idea uh, how these two sides that bitterly hate each other can possibly reach a reconciliation and live together. Uh, but we do pray, Lord, that you would be working by the, only, by the power of your Holy Spirit in the hearts and minds of many, many people, uh, that they would see that war and conflict is not the best way to solve our disagreements. Now, Lord, we pray uh, for the leadership of the nations that they would have some small amount of self-giving love uh, to be able to give the other uh, what they are due as well as to seek what is wanted by their side. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you would uh, be with our leadership um, that this conflict not widen. And we ask that you would be with those people in positions of power that they would think very carefully and very reasonably about what the future might bring if things spin out of control. And we pray, Lord, that you would be with the families that have lost loved ones, um, the, the many families that will never see a child or a husband or a brother or a father or a mother again. Uh, we ask that you would comfort them and be with them in this uh, terrible, terrible time. And for us, Lord, we pray that you would send us from this place more able to share the gospel of peace, uh, not just uh, in this Sunday school class, but in our city, in our businesses, in our families, in our relationships. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen.